You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And we are back once again with our second week covering Ghosts of Paris by Tara Moss with our good friend Dom here, a local at 2SER. We are talking chapters 13 to 24 today. Dom is in the hot seat. And I wanted to, to, to get off with perhaps my favorite point about this part of the novel, but also my biggest sticking point about this part of the novel. Uh-oh. What's that? That is that... At the, at the same time, I love how practical this book is, but I also hate how practical this book is. For example, we ended off at the last stretch of chapters with Shyla back in Sydney, the indigenous woman that Billy has gotten to basically cover and look after her office while she's gone, receiving a letter with a, a, a shocking revelation about Richard Montgomery. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly, exactly. And... I was looking forward to the big convoluted plan of how Shyla got that information to Billy, and it was going to be a big plan where she has to fly to the other side of the world. But of course, indigenous women trying to leave the country in the 1940s, that's going to be a bit of strife, unfortunately. Unless they're fighting for our country and exactly. then coming back and not being recognized for fighting for yeah, our I country. Know. Oh my goodness. I was looking forward to, you know, having some complications there, but she just mails it and it arrives just in time for them to need it. And like, I, I love just how blunt that is, that it's like, well, of course she'd mail it. It's the best way to get it to them in the 1940s. But I also, I kind of longed for the chaos that would have come out of that situation. I see. I thought you were going to complain about the fact that when you split the book in three, because there are 36 chapters and we go 12 and then 24, that, you know, we end on another awesome cliffhanger that involves Shyla again. I thought mm-hmm. you were going to complain about that because you love it and yet you also go, how did that work out? Well, it's, a, it's kind of a fun series of chapters because, as you say, we we don't really get a lot of drama with Shia the first time we kind of touch bases with her or even the second time. There is, there is, we come back and forth to these two, you know, between Australia and Europe a couple of times and you could almost replace the Shia scenes with like, oh, Billy receives a letter from Shia telling her about what's going on, except for the fact that she stabs a man. And I don't think you could replace that with anything, frankly. I I think the other thing that you brought up there that I found really engaging in this stretch was the discussion with Harold and Basil, was it? About the punishment for war crimes in the Second World War. Oh my goodness. That entire scene was so tangibly uncomfortable, but I also love kind of the way that it's so authentic to the real situation because one thing uh, we had journalist Paul Daly on a while ago to speak about the different ways that like Australia and Japan view their war history when we were covering some Japanese novels. And one thing that I remember from that conversation is the way that so many countries are like embarrassed by their war history and don't speak about it. We were in Australia house, which is like everything's in absolute turmoil and yet the people working inside and the people who've been working inside for the longest. And they're all, let's make up and be friendly. Let's not be beastly to the Germans, as Noel Coward once sang. Mm. Yeah. I I mean, I love Billy in this series of scenes because clearly she's trying to do the sort of, there's a bit of the femme fatale in there. She's like following this, this guy around who's smitten with her, trying to like play the scene and, get all the information she needs and get some contacts and allies while she's in London. But she gets so like, you know, caught up just justifiably and like, maybe we shouldn't let the Nazis go that her facade is like completely destroyed because obviously a lot of the the locales that we move through in this novel are bombed out and cracked. And we have all these characters who are, 
dealing with the trauma of of the war and yeah that that contrast i guess between the characters who get who who can't leave the past behind because they're caught up in it and the characters who say well i have enough distance to the the concentration camps i think we can get away with you know making friends with all the the nazis i think that's like a really powerful juxtaposition and a good place to put our main characters and to be to be vulnerable in as well i think it's really cool i i love your observation and even further than that remember that mm. the problem the problem the problem with france were there were a lot of collaborators and yes. they're the ones that don't want to forget now. We're going to get those bastards. We're going to pursue them till we get them all. They're all declared guilty and, you know, they're going to be uh, put to death if we ever catch them, guilty in absentia, whereas the Australians who weren't collaborators are like, oh, well, you know, forgive and forget, move on, life goes on. <laughs> yeah, I think the other thing that was really interesting in their herds that you pointed out was the kind of femme fatale nature of Billy's character because on the one hand, she absolutely fits the archetype you know we get to see so much of her outfits so much of her passion i love the scene when the mm. the uh is it the concierge at the ritz is like uh pants are illegal and she's <laughs> like i'm sorry what but but it turns out she only has the one pair exactly. so it's not a problem really yeah. but but the scene that was really interesting to me in that lens was when they go for to the Cavisham Smith's house and, you know, she's taken the keys from Sam for this rental car that they have, driving it around the countryside, having a grand old time, uh, very much in the kind of spirit of like Franny Fishy, you know, not giving a crap about what anyone thinks of you upholding the standards of your time. But when she arrives at the Cavisham Smith's, she swaps seats with Sam to not startle them as they go up the driveway, which doesn't end up paying off as well, which I thought was really great. Yeah, look, that's... Very good observation on your part. I I like the fact that it means she's even more of a femme fatale, knowing when to be strong and when to, you know, to lay back a bit. I mean, she's playing the game better now because she's more aware of letting her emotions go and and not uh, the ramifications of not being in control. Yeah, well, I mean, I love a protagonist who can be vulnerable and I think that, like, we're throwing around the, the term femme fatale and it absolutely fits, but seeing the moments where she she does break character, where she says the wrong thing, makes mistakes even, shock horror. That's something we can allow our protagonists to do. Those are my favorite parts of this novel. They're my favorite parts of, of most of these sorts of novels. And I definitely think that, especially as we we see her interactions with um, with, with Vera and the way that she's almost, like, being strong for Vera because she empathizes with her, like, um, I think are much more clear now, now that we understand the ways in which she puts on a facade. Yeah, I mean, the the other thing that's so great about that is that she has that bit of character development right before she finds out that one of her friends that we met earlier in a flashback may have seen Jack Rake, her war widow, previous mm-hmm. book in the series, husband, uh, who was last seen in Poland before this, and her con- inner conflict about that character development that she's just had, but also feeling the tightness in her chest every time she goes to discuss, well, oh, you might have seen Jack somewhere. My favourite image in that, though, is when uh, Simone describes him as wearing a necktie. Wearing a necktie? Yes. Jack Thank would you. never wear a necktie unless he was trying to hide the bullet wound in his neck. Uh, That's ridiculous. I love it. I, I do also love Billy's constant need to like try and explain away the things that she feels uncomfortable about because it's like 
part of her role as the inquiry agent to be able to answer people's questions so she'll like hastily make an assumption of her own is really great because it like serves twofold showing her discomfort but also tara being able to like lure us as an audience a piece of bait thrown out into the into the pond can i just (laughs) say that towards the end of the last episode i was kind of wondering if it was possible for for Jack and Richard to be the same person, to either be Rack Rake or Jitchard Montgomery, not realising, of course, that Tara had seen a photo of Richard and would have known. I've done it again! <laughs> Billy would have I seen a photo of, of Richard and realised whether or several. not he was Jake. So that was I a think, bit foolish yeah, on my part. Several photos, I believe, but that's okay. I wasn't about to ruin a good theory. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or even a bad one at that. My other stupid theory, because I have to come up with a new theory. You do. And I know this one's already wrong, but for a split second I thought, maybe no one's ever seen Richard and his wife in the same room at once and he oh, hasn't no. died. He's just come out and said, actually, I was a woman all along and I'm now pregnant. I suppose, though, we should probably wrap this part of the discussion here and transition on over to the mystery and also take a a moment to talk further about the queers because that's definitely where I want to angle this mystery. Did you say the queers? That sounds fantastic. The queers. The queers. The queers. Frightening prospect, I'm sure. Anyhow, all that and more in just a bit. You're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. Stick around. Flex here with you. I'm joined on the line at a horrifying hour by Nicholas Pleskov, director of Murder Party. It is a French murder mystery film that you might have caught at the French Film Festival earlier this year, but its broader release is the 28th of July. Nicholas, it is a treat to have you on. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Thanks for having me. So one thing we love about murder mysteries here on Death of the Reader is the very game-like back and forth between the reader, the author, and you put that very literally with the Deguerre family's (laughs) game empire. How important was it for you that viewers could play along with the puzzle that you'd created? What, I, what I've always loved about murder mysteries in in books and in cinema is precisely the fact that it's the genre uh, the most uh, playful and the most gameish you can do in cinema. Clue, though, the clue, the clue, the yeah. clue games is uh, has always been adapted from uh, Agatha Christie, and today you know you got, um, I think. I think you know it's uh, this genre has got a specificity of not it doesn't take it take itself seriously yeah. when you when you go to uh, to see a whodunit on cinema or to read a whodunit you know you're looking for you you you're trying to find a murderer and you you're talking about a very uh, I would say uh, serious topics but the genre since the beginning of times have always been about including the reader or the viewer to uh, to a story when he can look himself about for the murderer for the murderer when he can uh, figure himself uh, what could be the, the the you know the the motive for killing as uh, someone who loves to be you know to to be included in the in the process when i go to cinema uh, i love the fact that uh, someone is playing with me i am playing with um with a film, and uh, when I wrote Murder Party, uh, something I wanted was to make the the status of the viewer evolve throughout throughout the film. First, it's you the murderer plays with, and in the second part, but I cannot say more because I would spoil. But um, <laughs> in the second part of the movie, in a way, you 
are getting the player with the characters in the film. Yeah, no, I thought it was really fascinating because César Duguay, the game designer, who is your lead victim, and because he is that game designer character, it immediately yeah. throws doubt on the entire premise of what's going on, which isn't something that a lot of crime stories kind of have the confidence to do. And I think it's so impressive the way that like you've lent into how implausibility Thanks. contributes to the fun of the whodunit. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. I remember when I wrote the script. Uh, very soon in the process, I, I knew that I wanted him to be to be a game, uh, to be a game bo- a board game empire, um, because it goes uh, quite naturally with uh, the journey of my main character. I didn't want my main character to be um, to be a detective. Uh, I wanted it to be. I wanted um, it to be um, someone who could uh, learn something during his journey. Someone who could uh, evolve during his journey, because most of the time the detectives, you know, are some uh, really, um, I would say, uh, blocked characters. Some characters that do not obviously evolve and that do not have uh, obviously uh, a way between the beginning and the end. And um, I knew that I wanted to talk about childhood. I knew that I, as a journey I wanted to give to my character was one of um, uh, someone who finds back uh, his childhood within, his child mm-hmm. within. And um, through this adventure, because it happens in uh, the world of games and uh, of uh, children board games, uh, it, uh, it's a way for my character to, you know, make his, uh, make his journey in himself. So it was... Um, so the world of the game became quite naturally when I knew I wanted to talk about childhood. Oh well, yeah, I think that's something really fun because, uh, you know, Hercule is the name of the child here. And of course, being yes. named after one of the world's greatest detectives really of leans course. into the idea that there is something youthful about the detective character and that search uh, that you have the opportunity to go on through murder mystery. The other thing that I heard you say in an interview, which absolutely fascinated me, partially because it took me forever to translate it from French, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but was that you described the film as as Cluedo within Clue and yeah. Hyperpop as a, a yeah. genre. Could you talk a little bit about that kind of aesthetic leaning? Because it's so fascinating to me using something as insane as Hyperpop and so modern <laughs> for something as classic as the murder mystery. Uh, you know, I think when you, when, you, when you go to see a murder mystery, the one thing you want uh, without even, uh, I think, uh, telling it is to be surprised. Uh, you know, it's a genre which is so popular. It's a genre which which have been um, so 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 much uh, seen that every people who can, who go to see this, uh, that kind of film is waiting for um, for his cliches to be to be to be broken. Yeah, he wants to see cliches, but he wants to to be surprised. And um, first, I wanted to surprise people with something that's not so. I would say. Uh, uh, that you don't see every day on screen. And then for me, this uh, aesthetic, I made it for two reasons. The first, uh, obviously, is that um, I love uh, old Hollywood cinema, mm. uh, all, you know, the 50s, 60s aesthetic, and uh, with the technical movies. Um, yeah. And um, what I love about it is that uh, it's the most playful uh, aesthetic. Uh, when I wrote the script, I wanted people to enter on a board game like a live board game. So I, I try to design the castle and the lights and uh, even tell people how to play um, in a very childish and playful way. And uh, then it, it seemed totally, you know, um, coherent with uh, what I was telling. And then um, I knew I wanted to this um, 
well to be as crazy because when you read the script, you know, um, what happened in the film is totally crazy. It couldn't yeah. happen in the real world. It's totally fucked up. It goes all over the top. And uh, when you re- and I told myself, if I film that kind of strange story in a very, uh, you know, uh, familiar and and a naturalistic aesthetic, you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't believe it. Um, If, you know, if you enter this, um, this castle and, uh, you know, the actors play very naturally, the lights are very natural, the costumes are very natural, the way of filming is very natural. You just won't believe it. You just tell yourself, uh, well, how can I believe that a murderer is going to trap some people and make them play? I just don't, don't accept it. But if you enter uh, this manner and it looks like it looks like a dollhouse uh, with a uh, pink lights, uh, actors playing oh, very the, the pink. The pink lights in the window was just yeah. so good because you have this like sort of day for night filming where you did it as like yeah. a slightly yeah. absurd blue, and that was like yes. it was it was noticeable, but it wasn't too much. But the pink windows stick out like the I sorest know. thumb in the best way. Oh, thanks, thanks. You know what is funny is that, uh, you know, my DOP had a really uh, uh, clever system. You, uh, we, we just, uh, with uh, an iPad, uh, uh, with a finger, could choose a color. Mm. And we could, it could have been any color, green, blue, black, uh, what I wanted. And we just spent 10 minutes trying every color. And when I saw this pink, I looked at him and I told him, that's, that's it. That is the most uncommon and absurd color. Yeah. And for me, it was a statement. When you come to this uh, to this manor with this light, with this pink color behind every window, you just tell yourself, "Okay, I'm I'm getting in a crazy world. Everything can happen because we, we were in a world where uh, outside the window, the world is just plain pink." So. It means, in a way, that we we're coming in the cartoon world, mm. and uh, that uh, anything can happen. I, I think that the pink is also such a good example of what you described in another interview as playful and suffocating, which is such yeah. like a great combination of ideas where it makes so little sense that your brain kind of gets caught up on it that some characters in the scene are like able to get away yeah. with things that you're a little bit distracted yeah. by, which is yeah. perfect for the murder mystery as well. Like drawing the attention away from things going on is like right up there with how you make the game engaging yes yes and uh, the the exactly when I, I wanted to make it to make it both suffocating and childish because uh, all the film you know uh, it's um, child games but uh, in a very perverse way very dangerous way mm. so there always this um this uh contrast and this uh mix of ideas uh, all throughout the film between you know the um, uh, it's the two faces of a child you know a child mm. On, uh, on one hand, uh, is uh, very uh, sweet and and uh, in a you know in a magic world, and uh, on the other hand, child a child is very cruel, uh, child is very uh, violent, and um, all the movie is about uh, you know playing with this contrast, and um, and also uh, yes, I wanted to be the most claustrophobic you can be, and uh, but in um, in a bittersweet way, it was a uh, uh, like you know, it's it is a pink of a of a. It could be a candy a candy store, but at the at the same way, you are trapped in the candy store. So they wanted always to have those two sides. Nicholas, I will let you go. Uh, a massive congratulations on the Australian release in, in this you film and the the end of the run. I can heartily recommend it if you're into your murder mysteries. Which if you're listening to Death of a Reader, I don't know what else you'd be into. <laughs> 
and yeah, uh, would be logic. <laughs> stick around with us for a little bit. More to come. You're on Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds, and Dom here for your murder mystery world tour discussing Taramos's The Ghost of Paris, chapters 13 to 24. This is the middle section of the book, which means, Dom, you are posed with the challenge of trying to come up with an alternate, perhaps more accurate theory on what is about to come our way at the end of this novel. Herds? Flex? I, I think the thing that we should talk about first here is the gaze, because it's definitely a oh, no. fir, uh, uh, it's definitely a big part of the mystery, because so many of our suspects, as it's turned out in this section, have fallen under the same umbrella as Mr. Charles in the previous mm-hmm. episode. And I a was pretty umbrella. Yes, I was really fascinated by like how many people that ended up being, you know, the entire bit that the letter that Shyla got at the end of last chapter was a warning about Richard being a blackmailer. And it turns out he was blackmailing other gay men to keep his secret of being a gay man secret was mm-hmm. like a fascinating hook. The whole queer theme of this story, like it's used to spotlight gays, like as a community, which I think is really cool because we're, we're using the linchpin of like, blackmail one character blackmailing a series of other characters to show that there is a community in Sydney um, of, of queer people. Um, and also that in Paris, uh, Simone takes Billy to a, to a, to a, to a lesbian bar basically. And throughout this entire novel, even if you didn't know you were getting into it, you know, when you first started, um, we're being shown this, like it's a little bit patchwork, but we're being shown this community of queer people across Europe, across Australia, and also showing how how normalized this this life is for these people in the 1940s. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that was really interesting is the way that everyone is surprised that Richard is gay. Like, oh, he was so effortlessly flirtatious with the opposite sex. Yeah. How could he possibly have been gay? But it's like, there's definitely a skew of people who find it so much easier to flirt with people they aren't interested well, in. Yeah, well, like there, there are two aspects to this, right? One is he's playing into the theme of the facade, which we've already talked about at length in regards to Billy. Um, and the uh, the other is that Sam, who is a character that, frankly, I don't think we talk about enough, he is not necessarily flirtatious, but he is like constantly being looked at and hit on because of his own attractiveness. And I think that that's just, it's just another way of being like, even if uh, a character is not, you know, all off the, not this character is not, you know, all off the walls, he on everybody around. Uh, if you're an attractive character in this novel, you're going to be, to be noticed, I suppose. I don't want to minimize or, or call into question any of the way we look back on the Holocaust. People of, of Jewish origins were picked on, but we also know that homosexuals and other, in inverted commas, undesirables to the Third Reich were also targeted, picked on. I meant targeted, picked on, minimalizes what went on. I, I still wonder, is, is the deliberate foregrounding of homosexuality still serving as a, a double for Jewishness or... I mean, I don't know yet. 
I don't know how it plays into the story. It's it's an interesting challenge, I think, not only for any author featuring the Second World War to like tell your story without minimizing the volume of horror that came out of the Second World War. But there's also something tidy about the fact that, as you suggest there, Dom, that there are so many parallels and this like collective dismantling of undesirables makes it very easy to tell a story about one that highlights the tragedy that happened to another. So regardless of the intention, I think that the effect is probably the same there. Oh, absolutely, because we we know that from the callous Aussies in Australia house, you know, they sound anti-Semitic as well as not being able to cope with people with different lifestyle choices. I think though, Dom, off the back of that, we do need to actually throw some questions at you. We've got a cavalcade of gay men out there blackmailing each other to keep their secrets hidden. We have the potential return of Jack Rake to the fold having been spotted uh, by Simone. There are so many different things going on in this story, mm. not to mention, we, of course- stabbed an Italian man. We have stabbed an Italian man. What, <laughs> I'm just saying. We, we were chased down by a car. We had someone break and enter Billy's like, oh, yeah. office. You've got so <laughs> many things to tackle, chase. Dom. What's, what's what? Well, the thing that, that you haven't raised that I thought was also interesting about the cliffhanger is they may have found Jack Rake's body. We haven't worked out that it wasn't his body yet that they've found in the morgue. Let me start with an easy one. Do you think that Jack Rake is alive or dead? I reckon he's alive. You think he's alive or dead? You think he's alive? If he's dead, does Sam turn out to be gay or does Sam and Billy hit it (laughs) off? I love where your head's at. This is great. Is Sam a a gay? I need to know. This is very important to me personally. Well, I don't need to know. I don't need to know personally. (laughs) Is it important to the story? He doesn't turn down... Well, I don't know if he turns down any any offers from from the women that flirt with him. This is this is the thing that's amazing about Sam's <laughs> characterization, right? Is that he's never flirtatious, but the omniscient narrator part of Billy Billy's voice in the story always observes him as though the void is flirting for him as he's doing anything. <laughs> he's the poor hapless yeah. victim of the flirtatious void. <laughs> It's not his fault he's good looking. The poor uh, hapless victim of the flirtatious void is a novel I want. <laughs> <laughs> is Jack Rake alive? See, here's the thing. I want him to be alive, <laughs> but then I also want him to be dead. Schrodinger's Jack Rake. If I look in the box, it's not an he's answer, dead. Dom. You can't say he's in a box. So you're saying the reason he disappeared in 1944 is because he went to New York to work on the Manhattan Project? Indeed. All right, sounds good. That's that's <laughs> locked I, in. I think Jack's dead. All right, Jack's, Jack's dead. dead. Next Jack's dead. Jack's dead, baby. Is, yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. All right, <laughs> and finally, the fate of Richard Montgomery. Where is this man who supposedly cannot hide hiding? And why? Richard was in the car, not Jane. Richard was in the car. He wants to stay hid. Why does he want to stay hid? Oh, he's a Nazi sympathiser. The car in London? Yeah. I mean, okay. he, has, he hasn't been seen in two this, years. You think he's just been standing you know, in the same spot in Paris for the past two years, Herds? <laughs> you know what? That's fair. I just want to make sure I completely understand the theory as it's laid out by Lieutenant General Dom. No one understands the theory, let alone me. And the final, the final thing that we have to ask you from Tara herself 
Is all of this in play? All of these narratives about refugees going missing, mysterious gay blackmailers. How would you end this novel? I I should say, I thought this was a rather cruel question, but Tara did ask it. Jack can't be dead. Jack can't be dead. Jack can't be dead. Jack can't be dead. You're changing your answer. Jack can't be dead because the guy in the morgue loves Australians. And he would have known. If he if he was embalming an Aussie, he would have known. I don't know how. There's there's a certain je ne sais quoi about embalming Aussies. He would have known. So hold on. But if if the guy in the morgue <laughs> loves Aussies and loves working with them, maybe that is Jack in the morgue, but he's faked his death because he's gotten involved in something bigger. So it's not Jack in the morgue. But it is Jack in the morgue, but it's not dead Jack in the It's morgue. fake Jack. It is, Jack it is the other half of Schrodinger's Jack. Right. <laughs> no. Did Jack do in Richard to fake his own death? Is Richard the Jack double currently lying in the morgue? <laughs> We've seen pictures of him. You know he's not the same person. No, he doesn't need to be the same person. They're two different people. If they were the same You're person, he couldn't fake his own death using himself as his body double. How does that work? That is Schrodinger's Jack. Well, you could just lie <laughs> on the what? slab until I the agree. people that need to have seen you have seen you and then leave. No. <laughs> no. Finally, <laughs> she jumped, finally a clear she answer jumped his Dom. bones on the slab. There's no way that he's actually dead or pretending to be dead while Billy is looking at him going, oh, my God, that's the corpse of my husband who I haven't seen in two years. We've done it, everyone. We've got, a, we've got a clear answer from Don. <laughs> After all this time. <laughs> I don't know that we have. Because if it dies and then he dies and then, oh, he told me the middle two <laughs> letters of life are if. Next week on the show, all the way to the end of the book. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us on your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. We're out of here.